0: If a successful colonization is to divide and conquer, an answer to that has to be reconnecting the pieces they are trying to divide. This podcast attempts to hold space to connect the pieces of Palestinian society because it is a dissolution of Palestine across the world that calls for spaces to reassemble the people. So, grab a cup of shay or kahwa, and let's have a conversation. This is Connecting the Fragments. Welcome back to another episode of Connecting the Fragments. Today, we are continuing our conversation with Ronnie Malley as the second installment of a two-part segment. If you have not listened to the first episode, I encourage you to stop listening to this one now, go listen to the first part of our conversation, and then come back to this one as this portion picks up exactly where we left off from the first installment. Also, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast as this helps me continue to do this work. Connecting the Fragments is also on Instagram now, so go follow the podcast there for more contents. Okay, yalla, enjoy the conversation.
1: I, got, I had a student that was referred to me from a very trustworthy friend who was Greek who was and he's a brilliant musician. He said, hey, my friend's son wants to learn Oh can you teach him? I said, okay, sure. I didn't even know if he was Jewish or what he was. He wanted to learn how he was. Mm-hmm. So I, I called, set up an appointment with his dad. And his dad set it up. I, I don't make it up. I mean, this is a student is a student. I don't, you know, the only reason I turn away students is the ones that don't want to practice, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I go to student's house and I don't do background checks on my students, especially when they're 15. And I certainly don't do background checks on their parents to see what where they're from. So I get there, and and lo and behold, he's Jewish. His father is is Jewish as well, and obviously, and it turned out his father actually works for worked for the Jewish United Fund. Oh my god! I had no idea. I didn't even know what that institution was. Did no, they know they until, that you were Palestinian
0: when they asked you
1: to do this? So he didn't ask. They asked for an Ode instructor. They didn't ask for a Palestinian or Arab or Egyptian. Right. the no Chicago is full of Ode instructors. When you put it out there, it's your profession. That's your profession. The friend that referred me, though, is a good beer friend of mine that I trust in many ways. He's Greek, he's not Jewish, he's a brilliant musician. And this was his colleague, son, that wanted to learn O. So it's like oh anybody God. coming up to anybody in America and saying, Hey, you play guitar? My son wants to take lessons. Can you go give my son guitar lessons? I don't go dig deep and say, Well, are you Republican or are you Democrat for me to be able to give your son lessons? <laughs> I don't do that. You know, and if I was in an institution and did that, guess what happens? I'm fired. Right. Right? So I have to ascribe the same rules that I would in an institution to to myself, to a degree, right? I mean, obviously, I don't want to be exploited, but I didn't see how, I I didn't know this, by the way, all at first. I had given him lessons already. And, you know, I saw that he was Jewish and he wanted to learn some other music, including some Jewish hymns and things like that, but also Middle Eastern music. And he was a brilliant musician. He was a young kid, but he was very, very good. I invited him to come to the Old Town School of Folk Music, where I was teaching an ensemble class. I said, join the ensemble class, you'll get more. Then I even referred him to the Middle East Music Ensemble at the University of Chicago to go audition and join them, and he did, and he did very well. Well, the same student, as we would continue our lessons for a year or so, two years, in the interim, I I got some feedback, (laughs) unsolicited. Other musicians or people that I knew in the Palestinian community who knew him because they were musicians as well, and they said, "Are you teaching this guy?" I said, "Yeah, he's been a student with me for a little while." But why? He said, "You should stop teaching (laughs) him." I said, "Why?" And uh, they said, "Well, did you see? He has on Facebook one of his favorite books is Alan Dershowitz's *The Case for Israel*. Yeah, and and, uh, (laughs) I'm just like Trump's favorite book, and the only one he probably read was Mein Kampf." You know, I, I can't judge literally judge a book by its cover in the sense, like all right, he has that book out there, but it might not be his favorite book. He just had it on as one of the books he read. I would read that book so that I can get an understanding of the other side. You know, I would read books that, that are like that, not because I agree with them, but because I want to see, well, what's the rhetoric that you're spewing out so I know what's combat? You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, what happened in the end? Because I'm like dying to know what happened with this, okay, this student. So, so
1: they, they they send me there and they, send, they say, you know, Ronnie, you got to stop teaching this kid and this and that i'm like he's a sweet kid first of all he's 15 16 years old what's his stake in all of this i have an opportunity here to shape his mind about who we are if you tell me to stop teaching him then i've just gone and proven to him every single thing that he's ever learned in his life Mm -hmm. that we never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity that we never dot dot dot. that we never blah 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 and i've solidified and fulfilled all of the stereotypes that he's ever learned about us that I don't like you because you're Jewish. And then all of a sudden that you get this anti-Semitic thing. You, you know, even that none of that's true. Right. That's that's the impression that you would get as a normal human being. And the final detail, I didn't stop. And this student ended up going to Israel to go to school there and to be there. And we kept in touch, you know. He would come back to Chicago, and, and I even taught him Jewish hymns. You know, to, to, you can imagine a Palestinian was teaching a Jewish kid, Jewish hymns, you know what I mean? Oh, my God. And, you know, I didn't make it political. I I didn't want to make it political. I wanted to make it human. I wanted to make it cultural to show somebody else who's a student of mine, incidentally. Not forget that he's a music student, forget he was Jewish. He was a student. And my role as a teacher was to teach, not just teach him how to play this thing, but to teach how to be a person, how to be a chleb comes with music. Mannerism, adem, the way you are as a person, it comes with playing art and being a musician. So I couldn't forego that for any political reasons. So these guys are saying, you got to stop. And I just turned to them and I said, all right, I got a scenario for you then. Because when this kid came back and I, I said to him, are you going to Israel? I said, are you joining the military? I had to ask him, you know. Right. And he was going for professional reasons. I think he was going to go to do something a little bit more. I don't, he didn't have to join the military. But I needed to plant in his mind. That, you know, just remember when you're there and you see other people who are like me, remember me. Remember I'm I'm here and that other person there is also me. They're not the other person. And this is what I I told him. And he's kept this in his mind, this this student that I had. Imagine being an impressionable educator. I'm a 16-year-old student. They're going to take that lesson throughout their lives. Yeah. And so when, you know, these guys came to me and said, you got to stop teaching this kid, blah, blah, blah. And I said, look, anywhere this kid goes now in the world be it Israel, Palestine, West Bank, here, anywhere. And they ask him, how did you learn that instrument, the Oud? You know what he's going to say? My teacher was Palestinian. And I said, that to me is going to speak greater volumes than a lot of the activism. That was my form of activism, is to go in there and show somebody that you can learn something from me. Don't believe everything that you might hear in rhetoric. And then what I've done is by keeping the high road is I've created an ally. For us to fight our struggle in their circles. That is that is where I try to make an impact. Is I don't want to be the one pumping my fist outside all the time. I wanna be the one sitting at the table with allies that I've helped cultivate to change the minds of their own people.
0: Wow. How do you navigate that? Because I don't think there are many People, many Palestinians, who would take that approach. I don't know if I would take that approach because that that seems really hard, emotional, mental labor. I know trying not to keep it political is a thing for you, but I can't help but think of the the phrase the the personal is political, the political is personal. And you know, I mean, being Palestinian, just saying you're a Palestinian is a political political statement. statement, and so. How do you navigate being able to do that? Because everything you just told me, I would have probably been one of those people telling you, "Drop the kid,"
1: you know. Yeah, you know, and and believe me, it doesn't come without a lot of contemplation. It's not like I just jump into this. But you know, I have to first of all go with my gut. I have to reflect upon this. Well, what's the consequence of this? What I can't give in to my short-term passions to understand long-term understanding. And sometimes you just have to place that bet. The one thing that keeps me going, I guess, the drive, is that the struggle is in my heart. Obviously, I have a stake in it. My family's land and home and buildings, in front of which I stood. I mean, to see my inheritance ultimately ostensibly taken over with other people living in it. And I have no tie to it. It's a very disenfranchising feeling. It's a visceral reaction that I have. To, to remember those things, you know, uh, my heart is in the struggle. because I have a state stake in it. I can't go build on land that I've inherited right now because it's an area C in Bajunia, yeah. which is some. I, I would love to go. I'd rather go build a house there than make one here. You know what I mean? Same. Um, <laughs> but I I literally can't. The moment I put up a rock, it's going to get come knocked down. Now, how do I navigate that? Though? Well. I keep the struggle in my heart. But the one thing that keeps me going and I think that drives me is if I want to hate something, I want to do it on my own terms. And I'll be damned if I force somebody to make me hate them or to make me hate at all. You know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, what I'm saying is that that's the thing that keeps me going and that you're going to come to me, you want to talk this rhetoric or you want me to speak for all of the Palestinian people out there in some ways, right? So I'm going to tell you, well, you know, I'm not going to allow you to anger me. I'm not going to allow you to give you the reaction that you think that you want out of me simply to justify your stereotypes and notions about. And that's part of my drive because then more often than not, we don't realize we're being set up. We're being set up in these situations. For us to react exactly the same way that people expect us to react. And for us, we say, you know, this indignation is because, well, I believe in justice. Yes, you're right. We believe in justice. But you need to believe also what's happening on the other side. Somebody else is trying to get a rise out of you so that you give them the reaction that they're looking for. And the way I try to navigate it is always in the front of my mind. I have, don't give them a reaction that they're expecting. And I'll tell you right (laughs) now. There easier are very said than done. <laughs> expect the reaction of me to come up to them and say, "Hey, you know this Jewish hymn? There are lots of levels and layers to the political activism of this. I know most of the major points because I've lived them. I've had testimony through my city, and my sido, and my my life. You know, mm. they are living testimony to what I understand over there. And from my my grandmother's stories about not just being Arab but having Jewish neighbors there, I don't hear that being talked about so many places. So my trajectory then has to be like, okay, let's say one day, and inshallah, soon, there is a free Palestine. Or can I say Palestinians will be free? And in some ways, what people end up calling that whole area, I, I honestly don't give a crap anymore. Because the truth is, from Lebanon to Syria to Palestine and Israel, that whole swath of land should just be called the United Holy Land. Period. Because they all have holy sites to them. Holy to everybody. And they shouldn't be controlled by any one specific sect of the Abrahamic faiths. From a historical perspective, that's from my mind. Is. And then I think about, well, what is post-liberation? How would I act then if we do become free as a people? How do I coexist in that society? But, you know, that's the question. Like, how, yeah. do, we, how do we then interact? When I went there in the 90s, I saw a lot of Palestinian workers, some clandestine, some, uh, you know, legal, going to work in Tel Aviv. Every day, there was this underlying notion that we did coexist, despite the military occupation, despite all of these other things. Now, what really, really does need to happen is the BDS has outlined it. You know, We need some kind of right of return and reparation. We need the end of the occupation so we have autonomy. And we need restored rights to citizens, either be it in Israel or those who are living in the West Bank to have their rights and their dignity and to be treated as such. This is a human rights issue right now, and we have to look at it as such. You know, we think politics will solve this, but truly what's going to solve this is to make sure that we put ourselves and our identity at the forefront to show people that we exist. We exist. Don't Arabize me by telling me, you Arabs. Remember, we have Arab background, but we are still indigenous people to that land. Exactly.
0: And you've talked about, the different ways i think that you navigated your Palestinianness through different roles that you've had and you've talked about navigating these different spaces and some of the some of the negative and the positive of it being able to teach others about their own culture and they wouldn't expect it from you you know you wouldn't expect a palestinian to teach someone who's jewish about their their culture and their music it begs me to ask do you feel that your music itself embodies a form of resistance you talk about it as as something that's not political but resistance is political and you talk about using your music as a way to understand which in itself to change the situation which is what the resistance movement is trying to do is change the situation so do you feel that your music and in your work embodies resistance or do you feel that it doesn't?
1: No, absolutely it does. Because i I found myself, especially in the past five, six years, falling into this place where I've had a lot I've been very fortunate and I'm very grateful for the opportunities and experiences that I've had working with a lot of industries in theater and in music. They were like vanguards of establishing spaces for people of color, people who have been disenfranchised, you know, what we're calling today BIPOC or these kind of milieus. And I found myself Trying to create something that I never believed music is just for entertainment. A musician or an artist in general or a storyteller, writer, any of those things, what we are truly in the essence of what an artist is, is you become a conduit for society and what is social expressing. So you express yourself through what's happening in society. And that is the role of the art. We can call that political, but we can also just call that historical, anthropological. However you want to see it, it's all of those things. And by mere virtue of that fact, then yes, my music and my art and what I do is resistance. But more specifically, I say in the p- past five years, I've really latched onto this idea. And something that's b- bothered me for a long time had been the omitted histories. My history it was omitted from Western canon and not spoken about and distorted just like Native Americans history, just like African American history, just like Asian American history here. These things were not taught in our schools. And so I found myself in a place where, what can I do about this? And I was tapped by a a wonderful organization called Silk Road Rising Theater Company in downtown Chicago. And they said, what are you working on? I said, well, you know, I wrote this story about an untold story, not very popular in the West, of the guy who created the Oud, who took the Oud from Iraq to Cordoba Spain in the 8th century, and, you know, created a revolution, and basically it led to the invention of the lute and then the guitar. And the guy's name was Zediyah, And he came from the backdrop of a lot of political turmoil during the uh, caliphates, the Abbasid Caliphate at the time, and the Umayyad Caliphate. But he goes to Cordoba, Spain, in Andalusia. And I I write this story, and and I just kind of pitched it as a storytelling thing. And they said, well, can you turn this more into a solo performance play? And can you put more of yourself in? That started me to think, all right, well, what are similarities that existed in Andalusia and in my background? And I realized that the common thread was, Andalusia, Jerusalem, and Palestine, and America all had essential cosmopolitan societies. And the other thing that made them very unique is that specifically Andalusia, Jews, Christians, and Muslims lived side by side, and through their varied backgrounds contributed to one culture. And I thought, well, that's the same thing in Jerusalem. Same thing in America. People from different backgrounds can pre- contribute to shared culture. And so I used that as kind of a common thread. They're like, put more of yourself in it. I said, okay, because we would do drafts and reads back and forth. And that was when I went to go interview my grandmother, Sidney. Mm-hmm. And I, I told her, tell me about Jerusalem. Tell me more about what are some of the stories, some of your anecdotes. And I was able to take her anecdotes and put them into my play. Wow. And I. I and I turned to, and I even heard a voice saying them because I sound designed the play, it was this beautifully designed play, a set designer, costumes, it was a really wonderful presentation, and production. I ended up creating a common thread of what it li- means to live in pluralistic cosmopolitan societies, which is why it's really important to understand that that is what Palestine is. Palestine is not a Muslim country, it's not a Christian country, and it's not a Jewish country. philosophies are indigenous to that planet and i started to put that into the play and i'll tell you what the reception that i received from that from people who i knew who were activists who were part of the AFSC the BDS and other organizations came to watch that play the USPCN they came to watch the play and, and and the thing i kept hearing over and over is like in 75 minutes you just gave us a history of our people you gave us a history of the coexistence of these people together to dispel that notion that we've been fighting for thousands of years. And that, to me, meant a lot. And I thought, I'm going to use this as my trajectory to do more of that kind of work. Now, I'd like to also mention, I don't just teach Jewish students. I teach anybody. <laughs> my other form of resistance, honestly, then, is how can I educate my people? How can I help to, to show them anything that I know, that I've learned here? I become very excited at the opportunity to say that inshallah, I have the opportunity to pass on the things that I've learned, my language, our culture, our music to other Arab American children and Arab American students and people. And that for me is kind of like my quote unquote indoctrination of them, is to let them know that never forget who you are, but don't let politics define what you want to be. Do what you want. You want to learn music? I will teach you all the music that you want to learn. And in those lessons, we will talk about why this means so much and how you can use your knowledge of your own culture, the treasures of your own culture, as your weapon, as your defense.
0: I've seen clips of this performance that you're talking about. It's really a one-man performance. You know, in the few clips that I've seen, I'm like, oh, my God, I wish he was doing this again. I would love to see it in person. Just listening to you right now, I think I maybe understand even better now than I did at the beginning of our conversation when you were talking about this, you know, and you can study humanism and you can study people who spoke about the the need for this, like Edward and, you know, understanding the need to, to understand the other side or... That the other side is just as colonized as you are, maybe not in the same notion, not in the same way, you know, especially if you are the the colonized, not the colonizer, but your mind is colonized. France Fanon speaks to it really well. I think now I understand a bit more about what you mean about uh, just humanizing the situation. And it really is they want us to think that we've always been divided, that we've always been fighting. And that's not the case. And we can get to a place In the future, where that's not the case again, that we can just coexist peacefully again. And in order for that to happen, we have to start really just having those conversations, even if it sucks, even if it's hard, even if we have to fight to have those conversations, because we have to find ways into those conversations, because we're, we're not allowed usually into those, as you said earlier, at the table. We're not allowed at the table. And so right. we have to find other avenues than just the political, because right now they dominate the political. And so how can we how can we navigate that to get to where we need to be in the end? And I think I, I get it a lot more now, <laughs> you know, hearing you talk about the play than I did even earlier, where I was like, yeah, I understand. But it didn't hit me in the same way. I don't know if that made sense.
1: It does. And for your listeners, just to also know the reference, the play was called Zidia, the Songbird of Andalusia talked about Ziryab, who was the guy, a figure, who took the hood and became like the minister of culture during the golden era of Andalusia, Islamic Spain at that era, at that time. But few people knew that it was a Sephardic Jewish musician in the court of the Islamic caliph that was there. He extended the invitation to Zidiab to come there and became a minister of culture. And then that same court the guy had a Christian secretary of state, a equivalent to a secretary of state. So it, this pluralism has always been part of our society. And indeed, after the expulsion of Jews from the Iberian Peninsula in 1492, 1491, the majority of them went to Muslim-controlled lands because they knew that they would find a sanctuary there. Isn't that not the irony? Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to go on that tangent for a moment. No, you're
0: right. fine. Yeah. I.
1: That That is... You know, I, I can't go around living my life only you know with this thing. I I have to believe that we have an opportunity to live, and and I'm I'm always reticent to be quite honest with you using the word peace because there might not be peace in your own household. You know, your wife and I, you might argue over how much salt is in food. <laughs> you know, I feel that we need to get to a place at the very least where we can live civilly next to each other. You know, where we can be civil, not under military occupation or a gun or somebody coming to raid your home. We need to still get to the point of how can we be civil? Mm. And then we can look at peace or just coexistence. Before anything, justice first.
0: I want to ask, has there ever been a time where you've walked away from a project as a form of resistance where you didn't feel that it was something in alignment with who you are or what you represent? And even though you might have seen that opportunity to extend that olive branch, so to say, it just it wasn't worth it because you seem to, to take every opportunity and which is really brave and courageous. And and I, I don't really have words because I don't know many people who would maybe put themselves in these situations. So I, I just wonder, you know, have there been times where it, the situation called for you to walk away?
1: Absolutely. Now, this is a great question, by the way, because it is. The first thing that comes to my mind upon embarking any particular project, for that matter, it's not always political, but when we're talking about this specific subject, if you are Palestinian, believe it or not, you're an artist, you are going to be sought out by a lot of Jewish artists and a lot of Jewish musicians, especially Israeli. The same kind of pattern that you see with white people who have never really gotten to know black culture or black people all of a sudden becoming overzealous about how much that they want to show that they're an ally or whatever (laughs) it might be. And we know very well that those situations lead to tremendous exploitation. Yeah. And I can't tell you, there have been many times where it was very clear that somebody wanted to exploit the situation. And, you know, using terms Israeli and Palestinian, and can we, you know, like, no, you can't. <laughs> no, no, you, you can't. I don't, I don't want you to say any of that stuff. I don't want the subject or the topic of whatever project you work on to be that premise. Right. Uh, and I have yet to still find a project that I really believe in, that's endorsed by the organizations that I respect, and that I see would have such an impact as to further our cause in the right direction. There was one time where, you know, there was an artist in New York and he wanted to make it all about that. And I just kind of saw, like, I would just be the token uh, Palestinian that he kind of tapped into and not cast me in, in necessarily a positive light, nor did I see any benefit to my people. It's one thing where you work on a collaborative project and somebody comes to you and says, I want to hear everything that you have to say. And then you, in turn, then ask them to give their opinion and we find a compromise on a project together mm-hmm. that's a different premise but when it comes from hey i'm going to tell you a little bit about your culture what i understand about it and that's how i'm going to portray all of this and i'm just going to show that you're a part. you're a part of it see i know how to work with somebody and then they think that the residual trickle down effect of you being cast in a good light will also show and that's not true it's never true and if something felt wrong i would never even do it i will admit that there have been times where beyond my choice I have had to work with musicians and artists who were Israeli, but it wasn't on a project that had anything to do with that. It was an American project. So there have been situations where I have had to do that. I've had to work with people who ended up being Israeli whatever. Now... I have found myself in that situation. And as of late in the past couple of years, you know, I'm going to be very vulnerable with this right now. I'm just going to tell you this last tip because it relates to the last point of my life in some ways, where I am right now. And that is, a few years ago, I was asked to consult on a play. And this is a play that I had happened to see the movie for. Now, the movie was written by an Israeli director and writer And the play and the movie were called The Band's Visit. And the movie, I thought, was beautiful. It was endearing. It reminded me of a time when I was there, because it takes place in 1997. This is during the time that peace is in the air. People are talking about reconciliation. And the movie itself, what fascinated me was it was the first glimpse that I saw about how Arab Israeli and Jewish Israeli societies interacted with each other. And I saw that the composer of the film was Palestinian, Habib Shahada. Fast forward about a month or two after. I get a call that somebody wants to turn this movie into a play. And my friend who told me about it is actually Persian. We had just finished doing a a run of the Arabian Nights regionally in the theaters around the United States. And he called me and said, hey, these guys are legit, these producers. They produced a lot of Broadway work. Can you come to New York? We just finished. And he called me to come the next day to New York after I just got back to Chicago. And I said, yeah, I'll come and do it. I said, I just saw this movie. That's crazy. How coincidental. Serendipitous. So I get out there, and I ended up helping consult on this play some aspects of the script, music, etc. Now, the premise of this movie and the play is that an Egyptian orchestra, a military a police orchestra, which does exist in Egypt, it's like the equivalent of like a marching band kind of thought of, but, you know, it's a state group, mm-hmm. is invited to a town in Israel that is opening an Arab cultural center. And again, this is something many people don't understand. There are over a million Arabs in Israel proper that have Israeli citizenship, but that doesn't mean that they've let go of their Palestinian culture. So the culture that's still there, the food, the music, all those things, they still have those institutions. They're still there and they're going strong. And to me, personally, they are the ones fighting that front line. We are under a whole other situation in the West Bank with military occupation. They are in there. They have seats in the Knesset. They are part of the Arab political parties. So any change that's going to start to happen is really going to start to happen with them in that regard of really solidifying rights for them, but also by extension, what would they do to end the military occupation in, in the West Bank? So getting back to the story, That's the premise of the story. This group is invited to play at this Arab cultural center that's opening up in Israel. Mm -hmm. And instead of getting on a bus to go to a town called Petah Tikva, which is incidentally a renowned Jewish town, but there's been a lot of racial issues that have occurred there. Instead of coming there, they end up going to a town, because, you know, we don't say the word P in Arabic. They go to a town called (laughs) Betatikva. And it's a town of 400 people or less. And it's like this, this desolate, remote area. And the bus takes them there. And what happens after the whole thing, the whole movie, what made me like it, and the play, is that it wasn't political. It didn't, it barely mentioned even the word Israel or Palestine, for that matter. It was just people who are invited, in, and they get lost, and they happen to be from these backgrounds. And the human connection, what it means to coexist, what it means to find people in desolate situations and so that was kind of the situation that comes to this thing and so i consulted on this play in 2011 i kept in touch with the producers ever since then because they kept wanting to develop it so in 2016 i get a call from the producers saying hey we got funding we're going to be able to do this at the atlantic theater in new york can you come join us and i couldn't at the time but i referred people to them that would be able to do this but i said you know keep me in touch let me know if you need help with anything so i just kind of became a consultant to the show. I wanted to see where they were going with it because I had made some suggestions about them depoliticizing the script because they had changed the script a little bit. There was a scene, somebody mentioned Hamas, somebody mentioned something else. I said, take all that crap out of it. What does that have to do with anything? You know, and they listened. They listened. They listened to me when I said something like that. And that for me felt like, okay, I'm wielding a little bit of power here with something. So 2016, this thing goes to Atlantic Theater with some of the people I recommended. A year later, the play goes to Broadway and wins 10 Tony Awards. Historic breakthrough. Never happened before. What did it do? It featured Arabs on stage playing Arabic instruments as dignified characters. Not as terrorist number one. Not as, you know, stereotypical depraved person whatever it showed people as classy significant figures with cultural history so a project like this required me to dissect it tremendously what is my role in it do I just walk away what do I do and part of me didn't want to join it at the beginning because I didn't know what kind of situation I might be in I didn't even give thought that, would there be Israelis in the play? Would there be other Jews in the play? I mean, it it didn't occur to me. Right. But I was already already busy. Well, fast forward 2019. The play wins all these Tony Awards. It wins a Grammy Award for the soundtrack. I'm like an uncle to the show. I've consulted on this show for 10 years now, right? 10 years. I was somebody that they came to as as an unofficial consultant for the show. Well, I get a call, and they're about to put this play on for the North American tour. The music producers come to my studio in Chicago from New York, have a meeting and they're like, Would you be interested in joining us on this thing on the road? Now mind you, this thing I've already been asked this thing. It won these Tony Awards. This is a Broadway musical. Now imagine yourself not being Palestinian, right? You're just a, a regular actor or a musician and a Broadway producer comes to you and says, Can we have you on our show? Do <laughs> so you say, No, <laughs> But I'll tell you what, no was turning around in my tongue for a good three, four months. Yeah. I did not know what to do or how to deal with it. Uh, I'm being very upfront and honest here with you on that. Here's the dichotomy, where my Palestinianness came right in the middle of all of this. Where, what am I doing? What kind of situation would I be putting myself in? Here on one hand, my American side says the equivalent of Hollywood for theater just asked you to come and join them. As an American artist, how could you say no to something like that? Especially something that didn't have a political pretext behind it. In fact, it had something that showed your character as being a dignified human being with culture and sophistication. How how do I say no to that? Because I want to appease my political side. And that became a real conundrum that became a real it really played on my feelings my emotions my everyday tasks about how do i navigate this industry where i'm going to be put into a spotlight this isn't just like a one-off show <laughs> It's just i'm about to be cast into a spotlight here of being somebody on stage performing a play that happened to be written by an israeli but has arab characters in it that happen to also have arab and palestinian collaborators in it as well so they not only asked me to be a musician on the play they asked me to also play an acting role as one of the characters of the play and also be the Arabic dialect coach play wow. play. so i'm like here are these golden opportunities that people would kill for you said this at the beginning of your interview right <laughs> <laughs> people would die for some of these opportunities and here i am thinking to myself i'm gonna say no and i had to play that scenario over and over in my head Do I say no? Do I say yes? Do I say no? To the point where I had to literally contact all of the organizations that people I knew and friends that I knew or those I was affiliated with from the BBS to the Inner City Muslim Action Network to other friends who run other organizations to just see, hey, what's your opinion? What if I did this? What would you think of me then? What would you? In fact, I had to tiptoe around all of that crap just because I'm Palestinian is a testament to what we have to endure even as artists. Before we can even take on a freaking project that might propel our careers to a different trajectory. And that was when it really became clear what people and who are gatekeepers. And then also, where can I find my seat at the table? So after consulting a lot of friends for many months, you know, one friend said something to me and that it stuck. She said, well, there's nothing in this world that you can't walk away from except for kids, (laughs) your kids or your taxes. And I thought to myself, you're right. It's better to say, I'll take this opportunity now to go and see what I can do in the form of diplomacy. But also, what can I learn from the insides of this industry from a group of people who have truly dominated this industry for a very long time? And let them see me, and I will see them on neutral ground, on a stage in a theater, not in a banquet hall for a political conference, not in an Oval Office not on the grounds of a government building, but on a stage, which is like, to me, a temple in a theater, and see where we go with all of that. So I did. I did it. And I, I have to say, you know, it was a, a very enlightening period in my life where I know that I dispelled the notions of a lot of people. There were some Israelis on this play. However, most of them actually were American, and they lived here in America. I didn't know. I had no idea who would be in this, because there were also three other Arabs. There was an Egyptian, there was a Lebanese, and I brought a Syrian and a Palestinian musician, opening the door for them to be in a Broadway musical play that was touring. So in, in some senses, I was able to position myself as a gatekeeper, yet at the same time trying to navigate this political landscape that's in my head of participating in this endeavor. People can say what they will, and people can talk about this, but I had to do so much research just to see, did anybody ban this play? Did anybody speak out against it? Did anybody say anything? And even Mondo Ice and other organizations did not say anything about this. And I thought to myself, well, if the original movie. had Palestinian characters in it. It had a Palestinian musician who composed the music for it. Why should I see myself in a different way? And if anything at all, I didn't anticipate this, but I became the media spokesperson for the musical aspect of this play. And in becoming a musical spokesperson, I had access to millions of people for all of the interviews that I did on a weekly basis, on television and on radio. And you know, the first thing I said every time I jumped on that radio (laughs) is, I am Palestinian American. My family is from Jerusalem and from Ramallah, and this is the instrument I play. And I would talk about the music. I wouldn't talk about the politics, but I made sure that millions of people knew that a Palestinian was on a Broadway musical touring the United States. And that, to me, felt like it was the right thing. The tour obviously ended because of the pandemic, was technically still set to restart and start up. But the people that I've been able to reach out to and change and create this relationship with had been tremendous. And that, to me, should supersede anything else. Because the end result of any activism, any of these organizations that, are very legitimate, and I full, full-heartedly respect. I think that we need to understand, what is their end result? So isn't the end result to say that we need rights restored, justice restored, dignity restored, so that in the essence, inshallah, one day, we might not need a, have a need for activist organizations, because we will have achieved all of the goals that we set out to achieve. And that starts by diplomacy, by breaking down these barriers, by talking to, to people. You know, I know that Many people would not agree with what I'm saying or how I'm saying it, but I can't help situations that I found myself in, like this play, for example.
0: Well, you know, this space is to provide a space where Palestinians can safely talk about their experiences being Palestinian and how they exist as Palestinian in the world because it is valid, not to give it validity, because it's already valid in itself as a Palestinian experience and as as a way of living in the world through that. And we exist in so many different ways, and we choose to connect to our our roots and and to the struggle in so many different ways. And policing that, I think, has, has been a thing that many Palestinians have faced, being policed or policing others on how to do it the correct way. And you can't right. see me right now doing the air quotes, but I'm doing air quotes about correct way. I think that if there's ever a way that you can find a way to do the Palestine work, right, to do the resistance work, even if there is, you approach it through a cultural or a music way versus a political way, you're still doing Palestine work. And as you said, it, it is about humanizing the situation. And I think you're doing that. I think you're finding ways to do that. And I think you're putting yourself in uncomfortable situations and in situations that you probably wouldn't have been able to put yourself in if you didn't approach it through music and through these roles of consulting and on culture and and all of these different things. And yeah, there are definitely many Palestinians, many Palestinians I know who would be like, why did you have this conversation with him? Why are you putting this on the podcast, you know? And My answer I think would be because it needs to be heard. I think that there needs to be a space for all of us to, in in how we approach all of this so that we can connect to each other and understand each other. Just as much as you're saying we have to understand them and they have to understand us, we have to understand each other. Because of how we've been fragmented and removed from one another, so have our views. So have the way that we approach everything the more that we can have that dialogue with one another even, which is the same thing you're trying to do with what would be the other side. Again, air quotes, you can't see. In the end, it's all about connecting, and it's all about understanding and just having that approach where you're human and I'm human. We have these similarities, and where do we go from there?
1: Totally. Where can we find that fundamental common ground? And now, mind you, I'm not advocating this kind of peace, love, and thing. You know, yeah. with the absence of justice. Like I said, justice first. Put my rights down on paper. Get the hell out of my backyard. Right you know, of return, and don't for sure. Don't put up sure. a wall yeah. separating me and my neighbor, because eventually it's just going to come down. And you know, when people put up walls, uh, they isolate both sides from each other and from any hopes of trying to reconcile in any way. Yeah, like I said, don't don't get me wrong. I'm not advocating for this peace, love, and everybody get along kind of deal. I I was victim and and saw firsthand the effects of the occupation. And I see still to this day the firsthand of disenfranchisement of one's home that you can literally stand before and and see somebody else living in it when you know that that's your inheritance. But I can't allow, that can anger me, but I can't allow it to, to force me to hate. Because that hate, maybe the anger will fuel me, but that hatred will live in my heart. And I'll refuse somebody to try to intentionally dehumanize me and force me to dehumanize myself. And that's, I think, where our people find their strength in sense. You know, we are a very resilient people. You know, look at the Gazans. Nothing. They have absolutely nothing, but they can create electricity out of nothing. They can create a living out of nothing. And that's a testament to not just being Palestinian, but being a human.
0: Well, I do want to do a small clarification for those who are listening. You touched on it earlier. The colonization of Palestine by Israel has been done by Zionist extremists. I mean, I can't even say Zionist extremists. Zionism is extreme (laughs) in itself. (laughs) White Europeans that those are who came in and colonized and when you're talking about culture and you're talking about the land and you're talking about those who came from the land you're talking about those who came from the land you're not talking about these colonizers from europe am i correct
1: correct if if you're coming there to fight the spouse colonial settler ideology no
0: at the expense of all palestinians who have been displaced and can't return okay so i i want to ask just a non-palestinian question. I mean, I mean, there might be a Palestinian answer there, but uh, <laughs> to give to the whole, like, you know, I'm Palestinian, but it's not everything. Everything about me is not Palestinian. What are some musicians and artists that have inspired you
1: in your work? Well, you know, I grew up playing a lot of rock and roll. so <laughs> Some of my <laughs> first idols, you know, were rock bands like Metallica or Iron Maiden, and then guitarists like Steve Vai, Yngwie Malstein, uh, Jimmy Page, uh, Jimi Hendrix, Steve Lee, Ray Vaughan, Chicago blues scene, believe it or not, you know, that, that sort of thing. And then obviously, you know, a lot of Egyptian music. If I'm going to look at my Middle Eastern roots. A lot of music I ended up learning was Egyptian, Syrian, Lebanese, Palestinian, and Jordanian and well. But that was, you know, a lot of the styles I ended up really playing. And so people like everywhere from Umkhartoum and Farid al-Atrash to, uh, and Abdul Halim Hafiz to, you know, like I mentioned, um, Jimi Hendrix, Stevie Ray Vaughan and Metallica. It's the, the blend of who I was. You know, later on I also, because I had this background of my own cultural heritage and I dug deep into it like my dad forced us to learn thousands of songs and I'm not exaggerating thousands of songs. Because we ended up playing for 15 years with a family band. At, I'm not exaggerating. Literally over a thousand Palestinian weddings alone.
0: That's amazing.
1: A, night cl- a, ni- a nightclub every week. On the weekends, our weekends were, even when I had a quote-unquote real job, we were doing music every single week at a nightclub, restaurant, on tour, at a festival, or at a wedding. Mm -hmm. So we were plugged in. And I was a, a jobber in some ways. That's what they call, you know, somebody who's a gigging musician in that respect for commercial purposes. But because of that background, I started to explore and learn music outside of my culture, but that was similar. So I learned a lot of North African music, a lot of Greek and Balkan music, a lot of Indian music, so much so that I used the same approach that I learned my own music and heritage by going to some of these musicians and these people who are from these backgrounds and playing with them, learning, what did you find? You know, what's the equivalent of the Abdel Halima in India or in Turkey? or in you know, North Africa, those musicians started to inspire me and started to give me a global outlook. But then that's when I also started to realize, like, how can I use music? Just the way I'm learning it about these cultures, how can I use music to, to do something also for my own culture as well? Yeah, my inspirations come from various places. I, I, I love Ravi Shankar and Zapir Hussain from India and koali religious music, it's uh, Sufi music from India. As much as I love... Baba Mal and Yusuf Ndur from Senegal. These are, uh, and obviously, all, like I said, all the Arabic-speaking countries, you know, my idols were Abdul Halim, Farid al Muhammad Abdul Wahab, Kulthum, Baleigh, Hamdi, Wadi Asafi, Warda, Fayruz, these icons, specifically from the 60s and 70s golden era of music. And, you know, something you realize, like, I'm a Palestinian who wants to be a historian in that regard and somebody who's interested in everything else. I, just, I happen to be palestinian.
0: That, that is a lot of inspiration.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: you know, you've answered a lot of my questions before I could even ask them because you, you talk in such a way that just flows. And you, you go in from one point of conversation straight into another, and you do it so seamlessly. So I, I really thank you. You made my job today very easy <laughs> with talking oh, to you. Well. I, didn't, I didn't have to ask many of the questions. <laughs> thank you. But I do want to ask the final question. Unfortunately, we're at the end. It's the one I ask everyone, and it's the one I want to leave everyone asking themselves. If Palestine was free today, what would it look like
1: tomorrow? I think about that question every single day, brother. And I am not joking or exaggerating. I literally have my family's keys on my wall here. I I have reliquiums of the Dome of the Rock in my house, pictures of Jerusalem and Palestine, always to remind me that You know, something I've heard all my life is one day we're going to go back. One day we're going to go back. What does it look like tomorrow for me? It looks like I have a home in in the West Bank on the land that I inherited from my ancestors who were the indigenous people of this land. And I'm there without fear of a military occupier coming to tear it down, the bulldozer. What does it look like to me? It looks like autonomy. I'll be quite honest with you. I do not see a two-state solution as has been espoused. And I never believed in it, to be quite honest with you, because I knew it was BS from the very beginning. Because the truth is, if anybody is going to be in those lands and, you know, this occupying entity is there now, the way the English came here, they're going to have to learn to live with us and we're going to have to learn in some ways to live with them. But there needs to be equality and there need to be rights and there need to be shared resources and shared governance. And I think that the quicker that we can get to that solution, you know, what does it look like? I've entertained an idea once that I thought, Well, you want to call yourself a democracy? Then one day you will allow for a Palestinian Arab to be elected president of Israel. (laughs) (laughs) That's what a democracy does, right?
0: (laughs) So the idea of, like, playing within their own system?
1: Hey, you you know, otherwise, you're like what Ahmed Atreid, an Arab member of the Knesset, said, an ethnocracy. Mm. And that is called apartheid. Once this is called out for what it really is, I think we have finally reached the fulcrum of the moral dilemma that afflicts a great deal of Israeli society. And that is, hey, are we perpetuating apartheid and racism against an indigenous people of this land?
0: The answer is yes. (laughs) The answer is
1: hell yeah. Hell yeah. But it's not going to take just us to realize that as the victims. It's going to take the perpetrator and the oppressor to realize it for themselves that they've lost, the cost of that is losing your own humanity. So that's that's where we're at. Once that happens, freedom and what does it mean to be free? For me personally, you know, I wanna be able to get in the car without going through a checkpoint from one place to the next. And and not see on the ground, that you've put up this wall and you've put up this checkpoint here for me, not only to strip me of my dignity, not only to make me feel dehumanized, but to try to make me get so fed up that I either react with anger or violence or I just want to get up and leave. And I think they never anticipated such a group of people that would have resistance in their DNA, as we have, to stay there and endure. It's like, eh, the more you do this, I'm going to just be more patient with it, because eventually, either a, you're going to get tired of being a military occupier, and you're going to realize that the better hand of this is you extend the olive branch, not us. We've been here. You just haven't given us our, our rights to do so. You know, And all of the talking points that when the propaganda goes away, when the Jim Crow-esque era of the way society exists there goes away, and the flow of people are allowed to travel freely, regardless of what kind of passport they hold, that's what it will look like to me, that we have governance based on municipalities, based on provinces, perhaps, but there needs to be one state. And the reason is very practical. Resources, water, electricity, waste removal, landfills, civic infrastructure. You know, in the former life, I used to be a real estate appraiser, and those are the things that I used to see as problems in various communities here in America. The way aldermen, the way gerrymandering work and those kinds of things, it's exactly what's happening over there. There isn't any collaboration between these civic infrastructures. So when a military occupier is coming in and stealing those resources, once we start to be fair and equal, that's what a free Palestine will look like to me. Then we'll be on the road to reparations for what is in the UN resolutions of giving people reparations for what was taken and stolen from them.
0: It's my favorite question to ask people. I love to hear what everybody's idea of a free Palestine is and what liberation looks like. And I think that liberation, the more I ask this question, the more I realize that liberation looks like a little bit of everything for all of us something you said about, you know, the checkpoints specifically, and, and it brought me back to some of the things that you were saying earlier about the industry and creating spaces, right, where we're the ones making decisions, where we're a part of those credits, where where you, you worked on a Broadway play. That's phenomenal. You know, take away all the other aspects. You worked on a Broadway play. There was a Palestinian working on a Broadway play and had control over the media when it came to the music. And I don't know if you've seen it. I'm sure you have that short film, The Present, that was up for an Academy Award and it's it's won some awards and it's on Netflix right now. It deals with everything you just spoke about with, you know, what you think a free Palestine uh, looks like to you, that checkpoint aspect. Not to give too much away, no crazy spoilers for people who haven't seen it. I don't know. Have you seen it?
1: I know the premise. I haven't watched the whole thing because I wanted to see it with my daughters because I know that, you know, it's a man and his young daughter. Yeah. And she not only witnesses, doesn't realize herself being dehumanized, but sees her father in this position and his reaction Yeah. to all of this.
0: You now have this this short film that's up for all these awards. It's won some awards by this Palestinian woman and... And it's being talked about and it's being talked about as a Palestinian short film. And it's in these circles. And, and, you know, and I'm thinking about the work that you're doing and you're a Palestinian man working on Broadway show. It's it's phenomenal to have spaces where we exist and people are like, oh, Palestine, Palestinian. These are words mm-hmm. that you're making people use, making people acknowledge that you exist, making people acknowledge that you are a human being doing this work, and I think that with everything that that you said, I think that that's what a free Palestine is.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, and I'll take it a, a step further, just to briefly mention that it's been since the pandemic and since that play kind of came to an end after being on the road for nine months, I wanted to take more steps. You know. From you contacting me and telling me that you were going to create this podcast and and others that I saw like starting to step up, this new medium of connection, connectivity to everybody in the world is giving us a new platform for people to finally not mistake in Palestine for Pakistan, (laughs) for, for people to know who we are and then know our story. That is more powerful than anything. That is our activism. And it's led me to this point now to working with a wonderful director and playwright. Her name is Rohina Madik. She's a brilliant woman who has written a lot of plays about the, the Muslim experience, particularly from a woman's point of view. But we just started a new theater company called Medina Theater Collective. And the intent was specifically to tell these stories, I've worked a lot on Kashmiri music, on, and I've been to Kashmir, which has a very similar situation with the government of India as Palestinians do with the government of Israel. And we got to talking, and the first play that we're actually going to be producing is a Palestinian play, oh wow, uh, by a Palestinian playwright named Ahmed Masoud, and it's called The Shroud Maker. We're also doing another play that's being produced, a Palestinian play by another female Palestinian writer, directed by Edward Said's daughter, Negla. And what I'm saying is basically the art is there. Talent is there. We're just going to start creating spaces for for us to showcase it. Yes. Uh, And and that's, that's where it is. We just need to create space.
0: I love that, you know, and I love the approach of creating our own spaces for us. And I think seeing others do it in in their own ways is amazing. And time and again, I, I want a hundred, a million Palestinian podcasts, a million Palestinian plays, artists, you know, actors, musicians. I want to see it everywhere. And I want to see it over and over and over again. I want to see it saturate everything. Because For so long, we didn't have access to those spaces and and to create it for ourselves and to say, you know, well, we're going to take the opportunities and we're going to make our own and we we find ways around it. And I think that's, that just gives rise to uh, the true Palestinian spirit, that we are resilient and we will resist and we will find ways to continue living. You you can't stop us from that.
1: And and like what you're doing already with the show too, to show that we're not one homogenous people. We are a huge mosaic of people that come from various backgrounds, but all of are Palestinian.
0: Thank you so much for being a part of this and for having this conversation with me. I learned so much about you and about your work, but I think I even learned a little bit about myself today and how I even need to challenge the way I see things sometimes. And so I really want to thank you for that, for teaching me that and giving me that.
1: I appreciate that. I really appreciate you creating the space for me to speak and for others to speak their truth and what they believe. Just, you know, know that we are all, inshallah, going for the same goal, that we can all live lives with recognition dignity.
0: Thank you for joining us for our conversation today. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, please visit ConnectingTheFragments.com, as all contact information can be found there. Remember, we each carry a bit of Palestine in us. No matter where we reside in the world, we are all a part of the collective. From the river to the sea. There will be a day when Palestine will be free, and we will return.